Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Susie Titone, a member of the Freethinkers of Salt County. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, and I'm Bert Zipperer, a member of Madison Teachers Incorporated Retirees. This week, the top stories are why a nurse at the UW supports the upcoming strike, news on Labor Day, Labor Fest and its history, a decision finally in the city's attempt to eliminate some job classifications from union coverage, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining member and supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. UW nurses are set to strike Tuesday, September 13th. A UW nurses tells our audience why she supports the strike. Wednesday, members of SEIU Healthcare Wisconsin voted overwhelmingly to serve strike notice at the University of Wisconsin hospitals and clinics. If they do strike, it would be the largest strike for union recognition in at least 50 years and the first one at a UW medical facility. As of now, a strike is scheduled to begin at 7 a.m. Tuesday, September 13th. Labor Radio asked Amelia Zepnik, a float nurse at UW, why she was ready to go on strike. We are going on strike because patient safety. I feel that we have continued to see the hospital make policies and decisions without collaboration with bedside teams and without meaningful input from nurses that have had negative impacts on staff safety and on patient safety. And we believe that the only way for us to have a meaningful voice within the UW system is to have a union. And despite all of our efforts, we have done so many things over the last three years to try to get union recognition. The hospital has simply said, no, thank you. And what we are left with is this really difficult decision that we've come to to strike. Could you give the listener a specific example of how having a union would improve the quality of care for patients? But with a union contract, we could incentivize adequate staffing, adequate retention by having contractually obligated nursing staffing ratios would help keep our patients safer and we could negotiate that in a in a contract and we wouldn't be able to have teeth in that unless we had union recognition and an agreed-upon contract. Nurse Sechnik went on to discuss why a contract and a union is necessary to ensure quality. I haven't seen evidence that trusting corporations to make the right decisions as it relates to people yields results. I feel like sometimes we have to force corporations' hands because we live in a capitalist society. And the only way for us to do that is to have joint collective bargaining. Is there anything else you want to add? I just, I really think that UW has a lot of great ideas and a lot of great policies, and they just 
choose not to follow through on them. And, and as a community member who will need medical attention, UW could be a really great institution. And I feel like by working together and holding them accountable for the policies and the good things they've put on paper, we could be a really great organization and provide really great care to the And it's, it saddens my heart that we're not doing that now. That was Amelia Zepnik, a float nurse at UW Hospitals, explaining why she was going to strike on Tuesday, September 13th. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. In honor of Labor Day, Labor Radio's Ellen Laluzern spoke with labor leaders about the past, present, and future of our beloved labor movement. According to a recent Gallup poll, a little over 70% of Americans approve of labor unions. The Economic Policy Institute commented that U.S. workers see unions as critical to fixing our nation's broken workplace, where most workers have little power or agency at work. In honor of Labor Day, I spoke with three union officials, one from the national level, one from the state level, and one on the local level, about issues that are facing workers in the past year and in the future. First, you'll hear from Vicki O'Leary, who is the Director of Diversity for the Iron Workers International. She's also a member of the Iron Workers Local 1 and has been at it for 37 years. Are you seeing changing demographics within the trades? There's still a long ways to go, but women that are working on the tools is right at 4%. If you include the architects and engineers and all that good stuff, it comes up to about 11%. If you look at Hispanic and Latino workers, we're just under 33%. Black or African-American workers represent just 6%. Asians represent 4.5%. And quite honestly, I can tell you that many of the people that leave the industry say that it's not because the work was too hard. It's because of how they were treated. But these stats show that there's a lot of room for improvement. We have a long ways to go. What are some of the things that can be done to try to improve those statistics? The building trades are kind of like the best kept secret. It's a great middle class wage earning job by actually working with community groups. And we can actually get some great talent. By high school, you're kind of too late. So we need to start getting into the middle schools and letting them know that this is a viable option. What are some of the things that your union is doing to help improve diversity in your trade? One of the most exciting things that the ironworkers are doing in Washington State is working with Purdy Prison and having a pre-apprenticeship within the prison so that when they come out, they can go directly to the union hall and they can do their evaluation day within a day or two of getting out of prison. And we've had great success in the women and men that have come through those programs, giving them a second chance and then also giving them that brotherhood and sisterhood where they have family in because that's what unions are supposed to be about is embracing people. You were recently in Milwaukee presenting information about bullying in the workplace. Can you elaborate on that? On February 14, 2017, and we're reading about a woman carpenter apprentice named Udi Hicks, and she was working with a day laborer, and she had had trouble with him and had complained about him to her supervisors, and nobody really did anything. So on Valentine's Day of 2017, she was bludgeoned to death by this man on the job. The feeling that night that one of us could be murdered for simply doing our job was terrifying. So I asked a question that night, have you ever been afraid on the job other than the actual dangerous work that we do? And it was resoundingly yes. My question to them was, why couldn't there be that one guy that could have changed this? And they came back with be that one guy. We started talking about what does it mean to be that one guy? And being that one guy doesn't necessarily mean that you're a man. 
And then that turned into a whole bullying, harassment, and intimidation training program. And we've noticed that many others have come after us coming up with their own. It's whoever they consider the weakest link on the job site, whoever it is that they can bully and harass. Can you give your thoughts about how the last couple of years have gone for the labor movement and your trade in general? This is kind of a double-edged question because part of it is women were held back the last couple of years with the pandemic. Women had to become teachers and there was nobody else to watch their kids because daycare centers were closed. I think we need to get those women back to work and childcare being one of the biggest issues. And it's not just a women's issue. This is a family issue. We're going to have to rethink childcare and not just for construction, but probably for all industries. Because of the infrastructure bill, and we're looking at a good 10 years of really good work, now is the time to seize the day with getting in more people and people that have normally been left out, and that's women and people of color. We cannot man, and I say man in quotations, all the work that's coming up. What do you see as the importance of Labor Day? First, I want to say that I come from a union family. My dad, my brother, uncles, cousins, all ironworkers, I believe that we owe Labor Day to the working folks. We need to give homage especially to those workers that are working for minimum wage. I think that we need to stop giving them a hard time and applaud them because we need them. With that, I just want to thank all the workers, give homage to those folks. Next, we'll hear from Stephanie Bloomingdale, the president of the Wisconsin State AFL-CIO. How would you compare this past year for labor compared to other years? In 2022, it's seen great gains and great momentum for the labor movement in Wisconsin. We're seeing a shift in the way that people in general are thinking about unions as a solution to the problem that so many people are facing. Why are people now saying, I'm struggling at work, I'm having a hard time getting my bills paid, I'm having a hard time going to the grocery store, having a hard time making ends meet. Even though wages overall are going up, it's still not enough to be able to have that middle-class life that so many of us have been promised in America. The solution is to organize unions. We are seeing more and more people turn to each other as a solution to their problems. What does the AFL-CIO do to help unions and workers in general? It's so important that the work that you're doing to get the word out about labor, about working people and about what we are doing, because the corporate side, they have an open mic everywhere and they pay a lot of money for it. They have a voice. We also need to have a voice. That's part of what we do with our unions here in Wisconsin and, of course, with Wisconsin AFL-CIO and the National AFL-CIO. What makes you the most excited about the upcoming year? if we're going to include November, is our opportunity to make a real difference in this upcoming election. And I am very excited about our Labor 2022 program, where union members are going to be talking to union members on the job about the things that are important to them and how we're going to fix those problems. How do you fix those problems? Some of the ways that we fix problems is through organizing and getting good contracts, like we are getting better contracts than in decades and decades. And that's because people are really pushing the envelope, sometimes even going on strike. When it comes to elections, policymakers set the table for a lot of what we are able to achieve. So we are so excited to be welcoming President Biden to Wisconsin. He has shown us that he is really the most pro-union president in the history of this country. He understands the value of organizing as an economic tool to revitalize our middle class. We have to re-elect Tony Evers. We have an opportunity to elect Mandela Barnes to the U.S. Senate. And what I'm most excited about is about using our program of member to member, talking to people about the elections to also build our union stronger. So that's what I'm most excited about.
As you know, Act 10 stripped bargaining rights for many workers in Wisconsin. Will that be a priority when you recommend candidates who you'll support in the elections? When we're assessing candidates, we are talking about the power of collective bargaining and the importance of strong unions with each and every candidate. We ask them, are they going to do everything that they can to repeal Act 10 to restore collective bargaining? If they say that they're not sure about that, well, then they don't get our endorsement. We continue to push that forward as very much of a top agenda item. Any closing thoughts? Just happy Labor Day, everyone. We have events all across the state. No more pandemic shutdowns. We are full force celebrating a happy Labor Day. And that means celebrating working people and celebrating our power to better ourselves. I'm speaking with Kevin Gumlock, who is the president of the South Central Federation of Labor, otherwise known as Scuffle. What are your thoughts about how things worked out for unions this last year? Last year was what we called the year of the strike. There were a lot of workers that were fighting back and taking action. But some of that has carried over to this year. Some of them have done informational pickets like Acuna Mutual who make record profits and then still lay off hundreds of workers. And so those workers, they're saying enough is enough. It's time to fight tracty building systems. They wanted a workplace balance. They were being forced to work sometimes 13, 14, 15 weeks in a row. And they won that strike. We have workers that want to join unions. Raven workers, UW hospital workers, Collectivo and Starbucks, with even nonprofits like For Our Future. And those workers have said, this is the way to gain power at the workplace and make changes, not just for ourselves, but for our co-workers and ultimately the others in our community. What are you most excited about for the upcoming year? Well, I think what's really exciting is all of the organizing efforts and all of the workers that have contacted our office and other unions with leads. We have over 20 organizing leads and efforts. And we see city workers and county workers and school district employees who are all union members members fighting back and trying to make things better. The postal workers are fighting back. We have three other workforces that are preparing or planning or talking about strikes besides the UW hospital. We have the building and construction trades workers who are moving into more organizing. And I think that's something that all of us should be excited about. What are you seeing as the challenges workers are facing in organizing drives? In this state, only 8% of workers are in unions. We have a large percentage of the population that doesn't understand what unions are, that don't know how to get there. And at the same time, we have these obstacles. Corporate entities, business entities are becoming extremely hostile. Brought up Starbucks earlier. What are they doing? They're closing down shops. They're retaliating us workers, not caring what kind of fine they get. We obviously need changes in terms of the law. When that doesn't happen, these obstacles remain. What are some of the broader issues workers are interested in? Labor is in the forefront of some of the battles that these workers talk about. LGBTQ rights, civil rights, voting rights, Healthcare for all and issues like that, public education and affordable housing, obviously abortion rights and women's rights, social security and preserving it for all workers in the future, and Black Lives Matter. And we in labor are involved in those issues because our members are, we are, and we're committed to those values. Do you have any closing thoughts? Welcome to Labor Fest. We are back. So let's see you at Labor Day. Let's celebrate your contribution as a worker to the greater labor movement and to our community. Let's honor the workers for all the contributions they've done. Let's come together. Let's celebrate. Let's have some good food, maybe a couple beers, and enjoy our company. I hope to see you all on Labor Day. And this year's festivities will be taking place at the Madison Labor Temple, 1602 South Park Street. And the event starts at noon and runs till 530. Hope to see you all there.
That was Scuffle President Kevin Gunlock. You also heard from, from Stephanie Bloomingdale, the president of the Wisconsin State AFL-CIO, and also from Vicki O'Leary, who's the director of diversity for the Ironworkers International. I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Labor Day was originally Canadian. Tony Reeves has this report. Labor Day was formally recognized as a holiday on June 28, 1894. On that date, President Grover Cleveland signed legislation that set aside the first Monday in September as a day to express appreciation to American workers and their contribution to the nation's prosperity and freedom. However, the road to this state was somewhat convoluted and did not even start in the United States. The genesis of the American Labor Day was actually in Canada, with an unsuccessful printer's strike in Toronto in April of 1872. The striking workers did not win the improved wages and nine-hour workday they sought. Still, their motivation, organization, and passion impressed Canadian Premier John Macdonald. He feared that if some compromise was not reached with Canadian labor, it might channel its energy into the kind of industrial violence that the Chartist movement allegedly waged at that time against British industrialists. To avoid this, he enacted several reforms. These reduced property qualifications for voting rights, exempted trade unions from restraints of trade laws that had been used to punish them as monopolists, and granted workers the right to organize openly for collective bargaining. To celebrate these legislative victories, union activists conducted annual labor parades on the anniversary of these laws' enactment in July of 1872. On July 22, 1882, American Federation of Labor Vice President Peter McGuire attended one of these commemorative marches in Toronto. He was so inspired by what he saw that he organized a labor parade in New York City on September 5th, 1882. The parade was jointly sponsored by the Knights of Labor and the American Federation of Labor, then the two most powerful labor organizations in the United States. These two organizations then lobbied across the country for adoption by states of a holiday to celebrate the contributions of labor to American life. Thirty states had done this by the time President Cleveland signed the act establishing Labor Day, including Wisconsin. Of course, outside of the U.S. and Canada, most of the world celebrates their workers on May 1st, or the International Workers' Day. If today America celebrates its workers on the first Monday in September instead of May 1st, it is because President Cleveland made a conscious choice not to recognize a holiday that he associated with radical socialism and anarchists. He, like many Americans of his time, made the connection because of the Haymarket bombing, which occurred on May 4th, 1886, and was attributed to anarchists. That was Tony Reeves reporting for Madison Labor Radio. The results of a worker classification hearing between the Teamsters and the City of Madison has been decided. Greg Gaboski has the story. The City of Madison has ordered that a part of the bargaining unit of Teamsters Local 695, the union that represents the bus system of Madison Metro, be removed as part of the unit. This affected all of four workers. Local 695 challenged this, and a hearing was held in March in front of the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission, the WERC, held in a room at Teamsters Local 695 with WERC staff attorney Peter Davis presiding. Last week, on August 25th, a decision came down, and the Teamsters got a partial victory as Commissioner James J. Daly ruled that three of the four employees would remain as Teamsters while one would be removed. Labor Radio spoke yesterday to Kyle McCoy, a labor attorney with the firm Solder McCoy, who represented the Teamsters. McCoy explained his view of the case and the decision. The case was about the city's effort to carve off 
uh, a number of employees from the Teamsters bargaining unit. Boiled down version is the city made a variety of arguments. The only one that had real any teeth was that the employees might be confidential employees. But the city had their arguments on that. So most of the employees uh, are a bit backwards. Just because you touch confidential information doesn't make you a confidential employee under the statute. You actually have to play a part in labor relations, meaning you potentially have a conflict of interest from your working tasks to being a bargaining unit member. And we were able to, I think, accurately show, and I think the city even knew it at the hearing, that uh, the account tech and the account clerks levels two and three were just not going to be found confidential employees. McCoy explained his understanding of the reasoning behind removing the one employee from the bargaining unit. The commission agreed with us on the majority of the employees. The, the one, though, that everyone thought could go either way, the WRC did end up taking them out, is the Transit Operations Office Coordinator. I'm looking at the decision now. It, it, uh, it talked about uh, the record showing that she does indeed have a working duty of assembling the documents that the city uses when it evaluates and uh, and processes employment-related litigation. And so they said, well, you know, even though the teamsters are arguing that they could get those documents with information requests, James Daly at the WRC thinks, well, but she's got knowledge about what's being sought and, and the city's strategy. That was attorney Cal McCoy, who represented Teamsters Local 695 in his case against the City of Madison before the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission, a months-long case initiated by the City of Madison to remove the union designation of four Madison Metro employees, three of whom remain in the union. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. This week, Carol Weidel reports on the future options for school funding. Last week, we reported on the 23% less in earnings for teachers compared to other professions requiring a college degree. This week is part two of an interview with Dan Rossmiller, Director of Government Relations for the Wisconsin Association of School Boards. Since Act 10 became law in 2011, total wage increases cannot exceed a cap based on the Consumer Price Index unless approved by referendum. Increased pay for all school staff applies only to the base wages. Since Act 10 was passed by the legislature, there isn't really a good systemic way to increase teacher salaries except on an individual by individual basis through individual teacher contracts. And what I mean by that is the only way that a school district can offer a total base wage increase that exceeds inflation is by going to the voters and getting their approval for a referendum to increase by more than the CPI. There are other ways available for schools to increase teacher pay, but but the, the standard, you know, across the board increases that could exceed inflation are generally not available except by passing a referendum. The options available to local school boards is very limited. There are very few exceptions. You can offer supplemental pay or other things that don't require referendum approval, but if if you do an increase in the total base wage, which is a concept that dates back to the collective bargaining era, you, you have to get referendum approval if that total base wage for all of the members of the bargaining unit is, is going to exceed CPI. There's differential in pay for high-demand professions, uh, a lot of career and technical ed positions. What Act 10 did in Wisconsin was it created a, a free agency market for teachers similar to what became commonplace in professional sports where you know you go to the team that will pay you the most. 
The only path to future funding for school staff depends on the state legislature. Until school funding is changed at the state level, public schools will fall further behind in compensation for all school staff. The next state budget is going to be crucial for schools in terms of being able to meet their ongoing operational needs, just to keep the doors open and keep keep kids educated. Our state operates on a two-year budget cycle. Uh, the next state budget will take effect on July 1st of 2023, and it'll be the first order of business for the new legislature that will be seated in January. Thank you to Dan Rossmiller for this interview. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. In the past, Chipotle restaurants across the country have made headlines with stories of worker mistreatment. This week, though, one location is making headlines as the centerpiece of a newly minted union local. Labor Radio has more on the Michigan workers who made that story possible. Workers at a Chipotle restaurant in Lansing, Michigan, successfully formed the chain's first certified union in the U.S. this week, voting 11-3 to 3 on Sunday to join the International Brotherhood of Teamsters under the banner of Local 243. It is one of several recent union breakthroughs at nationally recognized brands, from Starbucks to Trader Joe's to REI. Chipotle operates 3,000 corporate locations and employs over 100,000 restaurant workers across the country. Like Starbucks, corporate-owned locations comprise a significant majority of Chipotle's national footprint, making both brands outliers in the primarily franchise-driven fast food industry. Harper McNamara, one of the employees at the Lansing restaurant, explained to Labor Notes reporter Jonah Furman that his reasons for unionizing were, quote, pay, scheduling, and treatment from managers. Labor Notes also reported that though the company did not threaten to close the store during the campaign due to its high-performance metrics, they did make a, quote, concerted effort to bust the union through extended one-on-ones with all 18 employees. In those one-on-one meetings, workers said that the consultant hired by the company would target individual workers with differing rhetoric, saving the worst talking points for those that spoke English as a second language. After these meetings, however, Workers would compare notes and identify inconsistencies as a group. Union members at the location expect that the organizing drive will need to continue with high energy for them to win a contract at the bargaining table. Since it is the first among the company's location to vote for a union, quote, Chipotle is such a big corporation that it would be kind of hard if it was just us against all of the company, according to another worker at the Lansing shop. Some information in this report was sourced from reporting by Jonah Furman in Labor Notes. Reporting for Libra Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. We're going to take you back a long, long time ago. Back to 19... 19, I don't know, I was too young to remember. 74. Uh, uh-uh, 72. Driving on down the hill 
Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Susie Tatone. Thanks to our editors, Frank Emspach and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Mike Bernhard, Greg Jabosky, Sean Hangerup, Tony Reeves, Carol Wydell, and damage control specialist Joan Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Bert Zipper. We also would like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Now, please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise, not only with Dave Watts, but with the professor, Bill Clark, and we'll see you all at Labor Fest on Monday. Happy Labor Day. <laughs>